Well, it's probably time for us to start, so stop your talking. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, it's good to see you all this morning. And we're in, um, as you know, our study of First Peter. On the board, I just put something, it's sort of in your outline, but I just put it a little bit of a different way. The first part, which we have now completed uh, of the first chapter of First Peter, uh, verses 3 through 12, let's just think of that as the plan. In other words, that's the plan of God. It's the redemptive plan. And all of the, all of the key terms that we looked at, you know, that, if you remember the railroad tracks and that right-hand side of the sovereignty of God, you know, elect and, and God foreordains and God for, uh, um, uh, for, uh, uh, loves us uh, and all of those things and then those, those wonderful results of that. Now, why did God do all that? And so the, the, the link, it seems to me, is in verse 13, where you have the word therefore. I'm sure all, I know we have different translations around the table, but I use the ESV translation. But therefore, that's an important connector. In other words, based on everything that God has done and everything that is rooted in and was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets and fulfilled in the, under the inspired work of the Holy Spirit in the new. That's kind of what we did last week. Therefore, the product. Now, that's not a New Testament word. That's my word. But in other words, God did all this for us to be transformed, changed people. So what does that product look like? So, again, this is somewhat following your, your little outline in the, in the notes that you have, but I just put it another way. The product, there are three paragraphs that detail three separate products. One, a life of hope and holiness. Two, a life of reverence before the Lord. And that needs to be emphasized. We'll discuss that in a minute. And I don't think we'll probably get to this today because of time, but a life uh, that's manifesting the love of God. And so if you're following me, we have the very significant theology of verses 3 through 12, which is the plan of God and all that God has accomplished in through Christ. Now, the next section, which we're now beginning to study, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, is much more practical. It's okay, what, what's this supposed to do? What's this supposed to look? How's this supposed to change me? I put my faith in a God who's done all this for me through his son. What should be the change, the product? How should it affect me? There is a principle throughout the Bible. It is articulated in the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, that sound doctrine produces godly living. Now, I'll repeat that. That's kind of an important sentence. <laughs> Sound doctrine produces godly living. And what Peter has done in the, these first verses, 3 through 12, is he has prevented, and I'm sure you agree, he has presented sound doctrine to us. Sound, the term sound, Paul uses it in the pastoral epistles. It, the Greek word means healthy, that which is conducive to spiritual health. And he has reviewed sound doctrine for us. And so now, verses uh, 13 through the end of the chapter kind of answers the question, so what? If this is doctrinally true, so what? So I'm trying to set this up in a way that you can make the connections between these two parts of chapter one. Did I succeed in setting it up? <laughs> yeah. Godly living. Godly living. Mm -hmm. And that certainly seems to, to me to be what Peter is all about here as he moves into this very practical section. Now, there's, there's doctrine there, but it's an eminently practical section for us. All right? It is tracking with me? Mm -hmm. So, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, now, I'm going to, I'll leave this up here, but I'm going to turn this around. 
I've done this before in some of the things we've studied. But I want to do it again here. When you have verse 13, now I hope you don't mind that I do it this way, but you have to think of the grammar. Isn't that, who wants to think about grammar? You haven't thought about grammar t- since you were in high school. And maybe even you didn't think about it when you were senior in high school, maybe about 10th grade. Some of you maybe didn't think about grammar since 6th grade, when your teacher in 6th grade taught you the difference between a verb and a noun, and every now and then you sort of understood what a pronoun was. See, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is ancient history, isn't it? But it's important for us to do that. What is the main verb of verse 13? It's set your hope. The verb is actually set. But the key thought is set your hope on something. Now, what do you set your hope on? On, Peter puts it this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ, on the grace that will be manifested in the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? That's referring to Christ's coming for his church at the end. That's what it's talking about. Jesus coming again. He promised in John 14, I'm going back to the Father, but I'll come back for you. Where I'm going, I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come back for you and I'll take you. Where I live is where you're going to live. I eat eternal life, heaven, and so on. Okay, now, so we're to be forward-thinking, future-thinking, eternally significant thinking people. How do we do that? What is a life of hope that's focused on the promise Jesus made to us that he's going to come back for us? And and Peter says, this was really a gracious promise. Do you see he uses that word? It's a gracious promise that he's going to come back for us. Why does he put it that way? Because we don't deserve that. We didn't earn that. We didn't merit that. It's not something that, okay, I deserve that. I'm glad you're finally going to acknowledge that, Lord. That is not grace. He's just, he said, and by the way, that's grace. That the grace that God has shown to you and promising to come back for you. So how do I live this kind of a life, setting my hope on what Christ promised to me? And there are two participles. There are two ways you do that. And if you see, they're preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. So one is a matter of the mind, and another is the matter of the heart. So, I mean, he's using, he's using language for us that it's figurative. I mean, it, it's hard to, okay, how I sort through that. But it isn't. Preparing your mind for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Who, who talks like that? Well, remember, this was written in the first century. And he's using figurative language that everybody would have understood in the first century. We're reading it in the 21st century. That we have to figure out, gird up your loins. What does that mean? You are preparing yourself. You are preparing yourself for the day. You're going to work, or you're a soldier going into battle, or you're a, you know, a a bricklayer or a mason going to work to lay the bricks or cut the stones or shape whatever, you know, those various parts of that job would be, you have to prepare well. You have to gird up your loins. You have to wrap your loins well. You have to prepare yourself well. So how do you gird up the loins of your mind? Well, your mind, this is a stupid statement, but your mind is where you think. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. So it's how you think. So to gird up the loins of your mind, ESV translates it, to prepare your minds for action is to be alert, to be watchful. And listen, I'm going to put it this way. To be thinking, to be thinking the way God wants you to think. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, speaks of having the mind of Christ. That's a good cross-reference for this. Girding up the loins of your mind, preparing your mind for action, having your thought life under control. Having your thought life centered on that which pleases Christ. Having your thought life centered on thinking the way the Lord wants you to think. Now, I'm not, I am not going too far with this. This is clearly what this means in the New Testament. How do I learn and, 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 and come to understand the way God sees things? What God's priorities are? To think my thoughts the way God went. How do I do that? By doing what you're doing for this hour on Wednesday afternoon. You're in the Word of God. If this is the Word of God, and he has inspired human beings to write it under the superintendence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then it's important that we take the time to understand what he said to us. So to keep your focus, that's a hope that's energized by the Lord fulfilling his promises to us, you need to have your mind prepared for action. Um, I don't know how pertinent this is, but how, how long after the resurrection did this get written? About 30 years. About 30 years. So all the people that he's speaking to or the ones he's writing to, they're, they're know, they know about the resurrection. That's correct. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I mean, now they know about it as an historic event because many of them either saw the evidence of it or talked to people who saw it, or it is now very well known because it is. That's the, that's the bedrock of Christian belief, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's when he says, and I hope, I've tried to say it about three different ways, and I hope I accomplished that. I want you to understand what he's really saying here. If you really want to have your hope fully centered on the grace which is exhibited by the Lord fulfilling his promise to come back for you, the revelation of Jesus Christ, then your mind has to be centered, well, let me put it this way, has to be filled and then has to be centered and has to be disciplined. Be thinking the way the Lord wants you to think. Now, so that you don't now all crawl under the table with conviction and feel guilty about it. How long does it take for that to occur? It really takes our life. Paul says, set your mind on things that are above. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, think about things which are righteous and holy and pure. I mean, the New Testament starts to help us to, to, to learn how to understand what this means. Because you see, and, and I don't think this is abstract to you, I think this is concrete, you really understand it. <clears throat> Before you put your faith in Christ, you have a whole, a whole pattern and way and habit of thinking about things. Now, I hope that sense doesn't make, isn't foggy or unclear to you. I mean, I know exactly what that means because I know how the patterns and habits of my thoughts before 1972 when I came to faith in Christ. But I also know that since 1972, I have been learning to get rid of and change those patterns and habits because I know this thought leads to this thought, which leads to this thought, which leads to this desire, which leads to this sin. Because as James tells us in James chapter 1, Sin begins with a thought, produces a desire, and leads to an action. It's the action that's the sin. But you can't ignore these things. And so all Peter is saying is, you have to change your entire pattern of thinking about things. And what that also means, you must understand and this is a self-understanding that's unique to each one of us, what causes you to start this pattern of thinking the way you think and change it. 
It matters what you put into your mind. So what's the conclusion? Be wise and discerning and careful about what you put into your mind. So what does that mean? That It's not going to mean, I can't give you a template of exactly what that means for everybody. Because some of you around this table can watch a television program, read something, see something, it has no effect on you. Where some of you seeing exactly the same thing, having the same experience, it has a devastating effect to you. Because this is a part of the habits and patterns of how you thought through things all your life. And you know it can lead to this, to this, to this, which can be devastating. And so you have to learn. And I tell I told my students and, and men I've mentored over the years, that's a really important thing to start thinking about and focusing on in your life, the thought patterns of your life. What are you putting into your mind? We can get really cluttered with stuff that get, of really no importance, you know? Well, I mean, that's it. And, and there are, you know, the, everything that's around us is, is not in itself. I mean, this is not innately evil. But this can be a very significant tool of evil for me. Can it? Do you understand what I mean? Yes. And not even, not even what I can draw up on it, but it's just you become... You can almost become addicted to this. You can, you, you, everything about your life revolves around this. And you have to just step back and say, okay, now wait a minute. Who is in control here? Is the spirit in control of my life or is my iPhone in control of my life? I mean, it's just that's part of what this means. I mean, Peter, when Peter wrote, Peter wrote this, he wasn't thinking about an iPhone. What he's saying is, if you want to live a life that is energized by the hope of the fulfillment of the promises Jesus made to you, then it's really, really important what you do with your mind, or you're not going to have the hope. Because very easily, very easily, I, I think this is, you all would agree, very easily today, it's to go from hope and and fairly optimistic, we have things of despair and pessimism within 10 minutes. Because you're watching the news, something going on in, in North Korea, or here's something Donald Trump says when he didn't really intend, you know, I'm making that up. You know, don't even know what I mean, do you? You know, it's just those kind of, you can't be despair. Oh, my goodness. Why did he say that? Why did that happen? Why is Kung Jong-un doing this? I mean, you just get to spend, instead of remembering who God is, that this planet is in rebellion against God, that sin, it, I mean, the human condition is such, and that's no longer characterizing you. You've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, you're now in the kingdom of light, which means you start to think differently about things. I often put it this way to my students. One of the disciplines of the Christian life, and discipline sounds so rigorous, but it's just, it's a pattern, a habit, is to begin to try to think the way the Lord thinks about things. I always tell my students, has God spoken to this issue? If you're facing an issue of life, next question, has God spoken to this? And I, I mean, how do I, how do I answer that question? Has God spoken to this? I'm, I'm in his word. I'm just trying to find and understand how God, what's God's perspective on this particular issue. Do we know God's perspective on time? Yes. Do we know God's perspective on self-control? Yes. I mean, those things are very clear. And we have very good models for it, both negative models and positive models in Scripture. So when Peter says this, you know, gird up your minds for action. You don't just quickly read over that, oh, yeah, I got it. This is a very significant, it's a participle that is defining how, how you focus and have a life centered on hope. Not despair, not pessimism, but hope. Because I'm developing God's perspective on things. The eternal, infinite, almighty God's perspective on things. And he has things in control. So I envy somebody younger that's learned this. Amen. Yes. You know? uh, that's a great. That's a great statement. Old, I gotta hurry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but can't you also see why you want young men to really get this? Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. 
and to avoid some of the things that all of us around the table have experienced and done because we weren't taking this seriously. I mean, I, I say this to students, I say it to, to young men, I say it to my kids. It's just really important. Take this stuff seriously. Because if you take it seriously, you're going to avoid a lot of personal hurt. And, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have chosen that. I mean, life's hard anyway. We still live a life uh, in a fallen, broken world, and hardship is just a part of that. But Peter is just, it's, it's just, it's a masterful piece of, of, of wisdom for us. Uh, Paul speaks of it in, in, first, uh, in uh, Romans 12, of mind renewal. Renew your mind. And how do you renew your mind? Through the word of God. All right. <laughs> yes. It's a lot harder these days because we're inundated with so much information all the time constantly yeah most of it's shallow superficial 40 50 years ago someone might listen to the radio and hear something or they might read a newspaper and right it seemed to me back then there was more time to um, perhaps think about things yeah Well, I think, and you're, you're making a statement that uh, a number of, of folks have commented on today, that in the 21st century, there is very little time for reflection and just thinking. And I, I think, I, 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 would, I would believe you would agree with that. There, there isn't. And that's why I would suggest, if that is true, then who can change that in each one of our lives? Only one person. We need to change that. So you just have to make, you have to make a decision. I want to build into my schedule a time for reflection and thinking. Well, that, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that publicly in the last three years. Thinking and reflection. Because John is absolutely, we are inundated with information. I mean, I, I'm sure you're the same way. I have a question. I no longer ask get the people question. I go, I go to Google and, and put the question in. I get, you know, 17 different answers or whatever. But you get, you know, just an absolute incredible amount of information. But, you know, information is not all we need. We need wisdom and discernment, which is taking information, processing it in such a way, that you then make what is a decision or a judgment, and the way Peter is talking about it, that is in conformity with God's perspective about things. So, you know, I'll, I'll use the two extremes. Just because Fox News has said it, or MSNBC, they're the two opposites in terms of cable news today, Whichever one says not necessarily mean it's true or not necessarily mean it is the only way to process and think through something because they're dealing with a momentary piece of information. And it's just that's why wise people are people who take information, process it. And if you're a Christian, which is what Peter is saying, you process it also through the grid of the word of God. Has God spoken to this? Is it possible for me to get God's perspective on, I mean, whatever it is you're, you're, you're talking about? And so it's just, it, it's a fantastic piece of advice for us that Peter is giving. And I, I've really embellished it. I'm sure we spent about 12 minutes on this because I think it is so important. Are you with me? Do you have questions about it? What? What Peter is really driving home. Now, again, you put it in the context of what he's saying. What's the main verb? Hope. Have hope. Not despair. Have hope centered on the grace of God in fulfilling his promises that his son made to us. How do I do that? Mind renewal. Keeping my mind focused on the things that are really important to God. Okay. Okay. All right. Right. Sober mind. Uh, 
Uh, Daryl. Is it possible? Sometimes we wonder what heaven is going to be like. Is it possible that the type of commitment we need in order to live this <coughs> is something that will be a standard procedure when we're in glory? Yeah, I think that's a great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that will be standard operating procedure in heaven. Because our new resurrected bodies and all that goes with that, there'll be no more sin, no more struggle with sin, no more temptation. I mean, I think I may have said this here before. For me, the most amazing prospect of heaven is the struggle with sin is over. The struggle with the thought, thought life is over. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. I cannot imagine what that's going to be like. I mean, do you, have you ever? I mean, have you thought about that? That's what Daryl's saying here. That's his question, which is really absolutely spot on. I mean, that is what our hope is. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back for us. We got a new resurrected body. The struggle with sin will be over. Thought life struggles over. Patterns and habits are over. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this group, but that's just that's just really that's part of the hope. That's part of the hope. I mean, it really is. And he uses a second, uh, you know, sober-minded, which again, what in the world does that mean? But sober-minded, well, you know, you know what sober is. Now, don't only think of like alcohol or drugs or something like that. But sober-minded, another way to think about that is sensible, wise, discerning. In other words, as you are developing, I'm going to, again, put it the way the Apostle Paul puts it. So as you're developing the mind of Christ, girding up the loins of your mind, preparing your mind for action, um, one of the results of that is a sensible, wise, discerning way to live. I mean, these two, obviously, these two are inextricably linked. This is a part of your mind. This is a part of your heart. This is a part of your mind, but this, this has to be in gear for this to resolve. And so, it, it, as, as we're girding up the, mind, the loins of our mind for action, then our, our living and our lifestyle and our, um, um, I can't think of another way to put it, the way in which we're going to express all of this, in our day-to-day living, is a sensible, um, wise way of living. And it's, it's just a, it's a refreshing way to think about life. Because if I'm seeking to understand the mind of Christ, and that's my goal, I want, I want to see things the way God sees them, then that's going to affect how I live. That's what, that's what Peter's saying here. It's going to affect the way I live my life. And that's a life of hope. Not a life of despair or a life of defeat, but a life of hope is characterized by someone who is, 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 is developing the mind of the Lord, seeing things the way God wants us to see them, filling our minds, being, being careful and discerning about what we put into our minds so that the result is a sensible wise way of living. Okay? Now he illustrates it in the next verse. As obedient children. What did you notice there? As obedient children. So if he refers to you and me as children, that implies something. What does it imply? That we have a heavenly father. And who's our heavenly father? Well, God in heaven. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, part of the way in which God talks about himself. But as obedient children. So, you know, obedient modifies children. What kind of obedience? A loving obedience. You follow me? That's, I mean, it's just take that apart the way the Bible wants us to take it apart. So as obedient children, a loving obedience 
to my Heavenly Father because of what he has done for me through Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's how the ESV has translated it, and it is a fantastic, a fantastic translation. Former ignorance, what's that mean? Back to the, before Christ. Yeah. When you saw things only the way the world saw things. Your perspective on things was a selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent way of thinking about things. Your former ignorance. Why does he? That's not a very nice thing to say. Your former ignorance. You were ignorant. You know, that's not a nice thing to say to somebody. But why? Why were you ignorant? Because you did not know about, or you refused to respond to all that is available to you in the full revelation of the Lord, which is in His Word. That's a different tone. He didn't say foolishness. He said ignorance. Yes, that's right. It's you didn't know. But now you know. You didn't have the mind of Christ, but now you do. So former ignorance. But do you see what he says, though? Conform to the passions. That's how the ESV translates that. Your former passion. The things that drove your life in those times of ignorance. Because passion... Passion is what drives you to do things. Passion is a highly motivational word. If you're passionate about something, that's going to define what you do and how you live your life. If you're passionate about automobiles, you're going to wash that thing and wax that thing and take care of that thing and vacuum that thing. and sw- Right? I'm making that up. None of you have any idea what I'm talking about. But you know, if you're passionate about that, that's what will define your priorities in life and why you do what you do. But your former passions in the time when you were ignorant about God, his revelation, his priorities, what's important, when your mind was set on you, now it's set on God. So it's, as obedient children, do not be conformed to those old passions of ignorance. Now he's going to give the solution in verse 15, but Tom's question. Yeah, uh, for people who are in addictions... This isn't necessarily an overnight deal, is it? Oh, goodness, no. No. And really, John, I think it's all of us, really. We are talking about, I should maybe put it up, Peter is talking about a process now for our lives. Sanctification. Yeah, it's sanctification. Okay. He's okay. describing He's describing now a life of holiness, a life that has made the decision of faith, now you're in that process of being conformed to the image of Christ. What does that look like? It's a life of hope. It's yeah. just the product. It's a life of hope. But yeah, and but to accentuate that is someone who has struggled with significant addictive behaviors, which can be a lot of categories. Uh, this is a, even more of a difficult struggle because they do have to put. Uh, well, let me put it. That's right. They do have to break those very intense habits, and that—that that is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I'm just—I I don't know how you guys are, but I—it's hard for me. It is really hard. And some of you, it wouldn't be because I know you've struggled with some. But it's hard for me to understand how someone could make steps toward opioid addictive. I—it's hard for me to see that. Now, if you have struggled with pain. You know what I mean? You're on pain medication. But I'm talking about I'm talking about a teenager who just starts that. That is really hard for me to understand that. But it's a reality. It's a very serious crisis. And you know, and it can happen. We have a very very dear friend who was in a terrible automobile accident. She is living with pain every day. And the greatest concern they have for cuz she's on this heavy opioid stuff that she is going to become addicted to it. I mean, that's, it's not that she wants to, it's just how she, but her body is becoming used to this because she's not, does not have the pain when she's on the opioid, particular medicine that she's taking. And it's just, oh my goodness. But the, the kind of habits that we can get into are not only drugs and alcohol and tobacco, it can be this thing. 
It can be, you know, news junkies where you're just watching news every hour of the day. And, you know, just all that, just, is that good for me? So all Peter is saying is those passions of your former ignorance. So what's the solution? Verse 15, notice the but, it's contrast. But he who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in your conduct. And then Peter quotes from Leviticus chapter 18. Of all places to quote from, from Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. Who said that? God said that. So what Peter is doing is, all right, I'm to have hope which is focused on the gracious provision of God to fulfill his promises to me by having my mind girded up, you know, and by by living sensibly, have sober-minded way to live. He says, you know what? This is what that looks like. Get rid of the old junk, the passions at the time of ignorance, and substitute it with the new vibrancy, which is holiness. I want to ask you a question. The New Testament answers this many, many times. But if the Lord were sitting across the table from you, and he would say to you, what's, what do you think my goal for you is? What's the end product? of my goal for you in the sanctification process that we're in together. How would you answer that? How do you think he would answer that? I'm setting up a ridiculous scenario, but do you understand what I'm saying? If he were to ask you, what do you think my goal for you is? Yeah, Peter just answered your question. He's, it's, it's all over in the New Testament. It's in Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.28, 29, 2 Corinthians 3.16. He is transforming us into the image of his son. That's the goal of transformation. That's the goal. What does that look like? We become more and more like Jesus. Not omniscient and omniscient. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in terms of character and how we live our lives and how we think. And so back to what these two guys were saying here in their questions, how long does it take the Lord to do that? It takes our whole life. It's never done until, you know, back to comment and question Daryl made, until we get to heaven. And then it's completed because we get the new resurrected glorified body. So it's just what Peter is saying here isn't impossible. But it's really important. God does not lower the bar. I know you can't do this. I know you'll never succeed, so I'll just lower it a bunch. 17 notches. For Woody, it would only be about 12, but for the rest of it, it'd be about 17 (laughs) notches. That's not what he does. He says, no, this is the bar. I want you to be like my son. I want you to be holy as I'm holy. And that's the goal. And what he's, he, in other words, it's, it's, an, it's an important perspective to have. God has high goals for us because he wants us to be like his son in terms of our character, in terms of our integrity, in terms of how we think, in terms of how we live. We're getting rid of the junk and we're replacing it with the righteousness that characterizes the Son of God. That's God's goal for us. Now, again, I'm trying to put it in language that is is relevant to us today because we live in a goal-oriented society and so on. But that's, I mean, that's exactly what he's saying here. As obedient children of the Heavenly Father, what does he want for you? Get rid of the junk of your past. And become like his son. And so it's, oh my, that's God's goal for me. That's what God wants. He's my father. 
I'm buying into that program because I know what the old was like. I can say that. I'm sure every one of you can say that. And so it's, it's just a remarkably succinct summary of what God wants to see in your life. But we're not passive in this. We're not just sitting there complacent. No, we're to be activists. A life of hope. That in, in the gracious provision of God fulfilling the promises of Jesus where we are focusing on what we put into our mind and we're seeking to be sensible, sober-minded people because we're obedient children of the Heavenly Father. We're getting rid of the junk and letting him transform us into the image of his Son. All right? Isn't that, isn't that great? You can see why I've said we're going to really enjoy studying the book of First Peter. But it's also making it a little uncomfortable, too, isn't it? At least I hope it is. This mm-hmm. is what God's doing in our lives. And I guess I, I've said this to people, too. Don't fight it. Let God do what he wants to do in your life. Don't fight him on it. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, puts it this way. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a rebel who's laid down his arms and surrendered. You have to think about that for a minute. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a former rebel who's laid down his arms and surrendered. Laid down his arms? Arm, you know, the arm fighting. He's laid down, he's surrendered. I give up. I'm done trying to run things my way. I mean, that's, you know, Lewis... I don't know if you've ever read anything by C.S. Lewis. to me, is one of those writers where I have to read every sentence. I can't skim C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I, he said, every sentence he has something profound he's saying. Oh, my goodness. I would never think to say it that way. I know I've told you this before in his book, um, The Great Divorce. He has a tremendous section. He says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom and autonomy there is. That is a great sentence, but you've got to really think about that. Well, anyway, I'm beyond what is in this part of First Peter. Are you with me? Any questions? Yeah, uh, Ron. Is that quote uh, about laying down your arms in one of his books? It is. Oh, you're going to say which one? Uh, <clears throat> I think it's in Mere Christianity, but I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I, on, I know the other quote is in The Great Divorce, but I, I'm... I think it's from your Christianity, but maybe it is. <coughs> probably, actually, if you Google it, it'll probably show you. That's the answer to all questions, isn't yes. it? <laughs> Think about that. Or the solution to all questions. So, is any any other questions? Are you, you with Peter here? This is a great section. It really is. It's so eminently practical for us. Well, let's move into the, the next um, section then, which... <clears throat> kind of goes back to this uh, overview here. We talked about the plan last couple weeks. Now we're in the product of the plan. What's God interested in? A life of hope and holiness. We talked about that. Now a life of reverence. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, let's take a look at it here in the next little section. Verse 17 uh, through really verse uh, 20. I don't know if we'll get through all that today. And if you call on him as father, now that's a first class, I know it doesn't mean anything to you. It's first class condition, which means you could translate it this way. And since you call on him as father. You follow me? In other words, in English, that's one of the struggles. In English, when you say if, it's like a condition. Well, the first class condition in Greek means it's assuming something to already be true. So it's why it's legitimate to say, and since you call on him as father, because that takes us back to the beginning of verse 14, obedient children. We can call him father since you call him father, because you've trusted his son for salvation, you're in his family, and so on. Since you call him his father, and then he has this, little relative clause, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. All right, now, we, we got to remember the language that he's using. The word exile takes you back to the very first verse of this epistle. Elect exiles. Because remember, from the New Testament's perspective, this is no longer our home. Where's our home? In heaven. So legitimately, and, and Peter's one of the few New Testament writers who chooses to use that word, exile, that's how now we think about things. I was telling the men uh, before we started, one of the guys asked me how my parents are doing. My, my dad's 93, he's very sick and so on. It's just every day I talk to him on the phone, he says, I just want to go home. Dad doesn't mean 114 Hayes Avenue in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where he lives. He means heaven. He's 93, he's sick, he's an invalid, he sleeps a great part of the day. He's so tired and he's so sick, I just want to go home. See, you and I often don't think that way. A 20-year-old never thinks that way. They don't think as earth, you know, as our life, as being in exile. This is what life is. Well, it is, but it's only phase one of your life. It is. It is a totally, it is. And that's why when Peter uses, it's a metaphor, but when he uses, we're in exile, you have to really think through, okay, what does he mean by that? And so he says, through the time of your exile, what's that mean? The rest of your life. Here, now listen, this is really important. This is part of that mind renewal. This is part of of girding up your minds for action. It's part of seeing things the way God sees things. This is a rebellious, sin-cursed world. It's fallen and broken. It's not always going to be that way. I sent my son to start to change it. And every time somebody puts their faith in him, you have another person who's now been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They're now part of the kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore... The proper word to use is your exile. This isn't home anymore. So how do I live then with that perspective? Now go to the middle of the verse. Conduct yourselves with fear. Okay, conduct yourselves. It's, you know, that's the command. That's the verb of, of the passage. So what does that mean? I live, my life now has a new dynamic center to it. Now, fear, it's, again, is the challenge we have. When we use the word English word fear, you're thinking of, you know, like my little girl, Joanna, when she was four or five, she always, 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 always wanted me to turn on the nightlight when I exited her bedroom after I told her a bedtime story. You know, why did she want a nightlight on? This was Joanna's answer when she was four. There are bears in my closet, and I want the light on. And I say, Joanna, there are no bears in your... You know, you know what I'm... Your kids have talked like that. Little kids, these ridiculous, irrational fears. But yet, so, you know, little children sleep with nightlights because it just helps deal with the, the fears and uncertainties of being a little child. I don't know, maybe some of you still sleep with a nightlight, but for the most part, that's not one of our fears. But there are lots of anxieties of life. But when, listen to me, when God is the subject, fear is a worship word. When God is the subject, fear is a worship word. It's our response to God. So conduct yourselves reverently, worshipfully, because he's my heavenly father. Since he is my father, and he has no favorites, he's impartial. He doesn't rank order members of the family. He's impartial. That's what Peter just said. In his evaluation of everybody, he's totally impartial. I conduct myself, I conduct myself. I live my life in reverential, worshipful fear. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
That's one of those things that sounds so spiritual. That sounds, amen. You know, we respond. You say, well, what does that mean? Oh, I have no idea. It just really sounds good. So we kind of, we have to watch, or I, sh- I should say, we have to follow through what he says there. But it, it's, let's put it, let's put it another way. We conduct our lives, we live our lives focused on God. Not our circumstances. Isn't that easy to say, but almost impossible to live? How long does it take us to do that? It takes us the rest of our life. But Peter says, since he's your heavenly father, and you know he's totally impartial, he does not have favorites, conduct yourselves focused completely on him. He's the center of your life, not circumstances. He's the center of your life, not the tragedies. And it requires faith, it requires trust, it requires dependence. That's what he's talking about. It's probably figurative, but I think to a degree it fits here. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on water? And you you have the disciples in the boat. They see him walking, and they're terrified. But one of them acts. Which one gets out of the boat? Peter. Peter. And as long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus, what was he able to do? Walk on water. Walk on the water. But as soon as he realized what he was doing and the torrential chaos around him, what happened? He started to sink. So it's a metaphor, but I think it's legitimate. Life in in a fallen, broken world is about chaos and confusion and hurt and all of that. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, conduct yourselves, with reverential, God-centered focus. That's true. How easy is it? Because I don't know about you, but my eyes may be on the Lord, but I'm telling you, I'm really cognizant of everything else that's around me, and then quickly can get my eyes off of the Lord. I know you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. It's abstract to all of you. But it's just what Jesus or what Peter's saying here is really that's why I'm not this is an original thought with me. But perhaps Peter had that very experience that he had on those raging waters on the Sea of Galilee. When I took my eyes off Jesus, I began to sink. And I, it and that is not an that is I don't mean to treat this glibly at all. But that's the advice he's giving us. Since he's your heavenly father and he is totally impartial, he has no favorites. Conduct yourself with fearful, worshipful reverence by focusing on him during the rest of your life, the time of your exile. Because when he takes you home, then, then, then it'll be clear to you. But this is just the front door to the eternal state. You see, for you and me, the moment we put our face in Christ, eternal life begins. The eternal life and perspective of things begin. And we're learning it. We're starting to see it. We're trying to understand it. And we'll see it in all its fullness and all its completeness when we go to be with him, which is back to the previous little section about hope. So, I mean, Peter is laying out for us a whole new way of thinking and a whole new way of living. And it it takes time, it takes really the rest of our lives to even get close to achieving what he had. This is the way to live. This is how God wants us to live. But I mean, it's a rich thought, isn't it? That's what he means by this. Conduct yourselves with fear. That's a worship word throughout your time of exile. Now he's going to explain more of what that means in the next couple of verses. But did I help you to understand the meaning of the word fear here? What that really involved? Let me start. We won't get this done because it's a quarter of, but verse 18. 
Do all of your translations start with the word knowing? If you know. If you know, okay. It's a participle, and it's causal. Because you know. Why do I conduct with myself with fear, reverential awe and devotion centered on God, not circumstances throughout the rest of my exile? Because I know something. It's causal. Because I know this. What? That I've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Because I know something. What is the word ransom? Uh, the ESV is correctly translating that. Ran- what does ransom mean? Captured or uh, redeemed. 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 Said again. Paid for. Because it usually, ransom involves some kind of a transaction. Okay? So I've been ransomed. I've been bought. I, I Ransom, I've been bought, purchased with the end or the result or the in. Intent of being free. So let's let's go with that thought. I've been purchased, I've been bought with the intent of being free from what? From the futile ways I inherited from my forefathers. <clears throat> What's the word futile mean? Rob? Huh? Useless. Useless. <laughs> Empty. Vain. Silly. Dumb. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the futile, that's, I've been saved from, freed from, bought from the empty, vain, silly, stupid ways that I inherited. There's a lot you can do with that. I'm almost out of time. I better watch here. But he's saying, look, you're a human being and you, you have a heritage. And, and perhaps he's focusing here on Jewish heritage in the first century as well as Greco-Roman heritage of the first century, both of which were pretty futile and empty. The Greco-Roman worldview was really silly and really dumb. But you've been ransomed from that way of thinking, that way of living. Because now your focus and center is on the Lord. Why do I, in this time of exile now, why? Because I've been freed from something. Now, I really want to develop this. So who's my amanuensis? Amanuensis is my secretary, the keeper of the books. (laughs) Who will remind me to start with verse 18 again next week? Please remind me of that. I'm not done with what I want to say there. It's another rich verse. The futile ways. What is he saying? What's he getting his arms around? And he wants us to see. Really, man, at the rate we're going, it's going to take us years to get through First Peter. <laughs> that's good. I mean, it's yeah. it really. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over these things. These are. This is really, really piercing things for us to let the Lord use in our lives. So I hope. I hope it's okay with you that we're taking our time with this. What I would love to do now is give you a thought paper to write and hand in next week. But I won't do that. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you have uh, revealed yourself and revealed your purposes for each and every one of us through your word. And certainly, First Peter is a wonderful example of this. And I, I am, I'm, I'm just absolutely moved um, as I've been studying this, again, of the richness of this little treasure in the New Testament. Um, you are very much at work in our lives. You are our Heavenly Father. And uh, you have incredible goals for us. You've not lowered the bar one notch. The bar is to become like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this whole process of, of transforming us into the image of your Son, to be like your Son, to be holy as you're holy, uh, that's, that's the goal you have for us. So, Lord, if you take that seriously, we want to take it seriously. It involves renewal of our mind. It revol- involves sensible living that's organized around a hope of the future promises through your grace 
of the return of Jesus who promised to come back for us. The Lord, it just it matters how we live. It matters how we choose each day to live. Help us to be very serious about what we put into our minds so that we can live wise and discerning lives before you because you have done everything for us. You put the gift on the table for us to pick up, and when we pick it up, and we accept all that Christ has done for us, we are changed people, and we're in that process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. As you're holy, you want us to be holy. So thank you, Lord, for giving us the enablement, the energy, the power, the Holy Spirit, and one another to encourage each other along the way of this wonderful life that you've asked to live while we're in exile, while we rate the return of Jesus. Well, give us a good rest of this day. May we represent you well in all we do and say. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.